Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. This is Andrea Schwartz and my co-host Steve Macias will be joining us shortly. Not a day goes by where someone is not reporting on abuse of some kind, and with social media, this is very prominent. Many weigh in on the subject, and this phenomenon has prompted us to ask this question. Is the subject of abuse being minimized in our day or exaggerated? We are joined by Calcedon's Vice President, Martin Salbretti, who has written extensively on this subject and recently was the keynote speaker in a conference that focused on this issue. Thanks for joining us, Martin. Pleasure's mine, Andrea. So, is it being minimized? Is it being exaggerated? And is there a more fundamental question that goes behind this? I think there's a, uh, a question behind the question, because any... Um, false accusation of abuse is exaggerated, and any true accusation of abuse that is dismissed is minimized. So the question is, where do we stand in terms of actual uh, the actual situation in front of us? And the very fact that we still have a, an abuse crisis, which is admitted by most folks, even if they're uh, the idea that there's a lot of uh, false reporting, false positives, as they say, present. We still have a, a crisis, a tsunami of uh, abuse, I call it. And this suggests that we've been cruising on uh, a long period of minimizing the, the scale of the, the problem. And that actually goes back to about 1895, 1896, when Freud published a book, The Ideology of Hysteria, where he uh, decided at the time that to believe what the women that he was treating were telling him, which is indicative of a t terrible abuse in their childhood, sexual abuse. And uh, he published that the, the trauma was at the root of their conduct. That they were injured, if you will, wounded in their hearts and souls. Uh, and this uh, created a, uh, a reflection into the present conduct and behavior of these women. They had not yet recovered from something that had happened way back in their youth. But Freud decided to backtrack on that, decided that if his reports were true, if the women's were true, the problem was so endemic, it infested every layer of uh, not only Viennese society, but Parisian society in France. He was unwilling to go where the data said, so he decided to actually uh, dis uh, suppress his own data and say, okay, all these women are lying, every single thing is a fantasy, and nothing, none of these events that they talk about happened. And uh, even when we got to World War One, when they were saying, you know, this funny thing about this shell shock, this uh, trauma that these soldiers are uh, presenting, we've seen this exact same thing with women uh, coming to us. It's because it was the exact same cause. It was the trauma that initiated the uh, psychological uh, disturbances in, in these people. But nobody grabbed hold of the trauma theory, if you will, of, uh, of uh, these psychoses. Uh, until about the 1980s and 90s. It came back finally, and for a century, this problem that had been minimized by the suppression of data, started by Freud himself, of all people, is now being turned around. And now we're saying, you know, we lost a whole century of time dealing with this question. It's been minimized for a century, and there's been a blackout of the data, and the data has been rewritten and suppressed 
and adjusted to say there's no problem here, nothing to see here, move along, folks. Let me, let me ask this. You're not saying that in the late 1800s is when this started. This is when data starts. So would you say that this is something that has gone on for a very long time and it's not just restricted to modern times? Right. I would say that the, uh, the evil in men's hearts that caused them to make a prey of their fellow man and their fellow woman, their children, has been present since the fall. We had a murder in the very first family that walked the earth, and things have not improved in this area. And there's a tendency for deterioration to occur when people rest on their laurels. Jesus says in, well, it's actually Isaiah who, who says it, but Jesus quotes it, you know, the faithful city, Jerusalem, you know, is uh, righteousness lodged in there, but now murderers. And the same thing is, is happening now. In the Church of the Living God, we find predators lodging in it, in its midst. And uh, cover-ups being uh, done and uh, prosecuted primarily for the intent of protecting the church from scandal, as opposed to embracing the problem and dealing with it in a biblical way, we tend to minimize it. So my view is, for most intents and purposes, the problem is being minimized. Where it's being exaggerated would be if there's false claims uh, or politically motivated claims, uh, agenda-driven claims, then we know that it's not an actual legitimate uh, claim of an abuse, but one that is has a, um, a motivation. But on, if I put these two things on the scale, the minimization has been vastly the, the worst problem, and so it's because we don't deal with it properly. Okay, so when we're talking about abuse, you're not just narrowing it down to sexual abuse. Are you including physical no. abuse, domination, yes. things like that? Yes, I think it's uh, the ways that uh, man is able to harm uh, his fellow man and his and women, and spouses. They don't just happen in wartime. They happen behind closed doors. They happen wherever it's protected or has some kind of sanction or uh, a society decides that they will um, cover it up. They'll move the problem somewhere else. They call passing the trash like they do when they take clergy and move them around. And the problem is not going to be solved with uh, manipulating the environment, which is the humanistic way in socialism. Mankind's problems are not moral, they're environmental. You know, if you tweak the environment, the environmental variables, you create a brand new man, you build your utopia by changing uh, man's schooling, or, you know, his training, his economics theory, and supposedly man will be perfect at that point. You, it's a Pelagian notion of man, and it's simply wrong because, unfortunately, Calvin was right <laughs> uh, insofar as, and Augustine, the scriptures for that matter, that uh, madness is in the hearts of men while they live, you know, and they, and unfortunately that cannot always be held at bay, but it can be covered up for a season. And uh, especially if we turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to problems in our midst. And that's why I spend a lot of time at that conference, uh, especially the third lecture where I talked about justice and healing, dealing with the solutions because we had two very grim lectures on, you know, the, anatomy of abuse and circling the wagons, how the church compounds the problem. Uh, so we had to have some light at the end of the tunnel saying, here's the biblical solutions that give justice and render healing possible and also uh, prescribe the limits of where abuse can happen. Because when we operate in terms of Isaiah 32's mission, the Messianic passage in the first eight uh, verses of that uh, chapter of Isaiah uh, it's very difficult to get abuse off the ground because all the sanctuaries and the safety features uh, are there present in society, decentralized, uh, 
and uh, and pervasive. And we don't have that today because we one we shun the Old Testament. To we it takes some courage to be like the people that are described there in that kingdom picture in Isaiah 32. You have to go against the grain, the social grain, which says, uh, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. And we're saying, no, we're going to shine light on the evil and reprove it and then uh, help the victims back get up on their feet and not be victimized and uh, harmed again. Okay, so you're saying antinomianism is at the root of this because people put a higher priority on keeping a good face, not having scandal affect uh, the church or whatever institution, that if they were appealing and going to God's law, they would be willing to deal with whatever mess ensued because they'd be pursuing justice. Yeah. Here's the deal. When we talk about justice, uh, I've said it so many times, there is no such biblical doctrine as social justice. All justice in scripture is individual. That also means that it's not institutional so an institution does not have a claim for a good name or a reputation and therefore has a, it cannot justify hiding its problems and, and shoving them under the rug. Rather, in order to secure individual justice, all institutions must be open to the light of God's word and the, the covering up of the scandals and the passing the trash, moving a bad pastor to another location or paying off uh, hush money to the, uh, the victims to move somewhere else or saying, you know, we're not going to Tell anyone you're involved in a scandal if you move to another church and keep it quiet and all this junk. All these uh, forms of compounding the evil that, to just make it go away because people don't want to confront problems. Problem represents an opportunity for us, but an antinomian sees the problem as uh, something to flee from because without God's law, you have no answer for it. Uh, right. And it also uh, confronts us with a moral choice. And uh, I think Judith Herman, I'm not saying she's a Christian by any stretch, but she makes it right that the the predator only asks you to do nothing, but the victim asks you to get involved. And therefore, you know, no longer sitting on your hands on the sidelines, getting off your uh, duff to do something. And that requires some uh, moral force and, and a uh, moral compass. And if a lot of God is not giving it to you, then you have a humanistic one that is based on values and feelings and what's convenient and pragmatic. And sometimes the pragmatic thing for an institution is to make it go away, whereas God's law demands individual justice. And he'll hold us accountable and will destroy societies and cultures that refuse to deliver it. And it seems to me that if our pulpits decided not to only be G-rated, in other words, we can't talk about things like rape. We can't talk about a woman's response to being raped, her, the necessity to cry out, the whole idea of being under the covering and protection of her father prior to moving into marriage, since none of these things are usually talked about, then you have victims, quite frankly, sitting in the pews, possibly with fathers or pastors who are basically taking advantage of them, but they may not even know that they have recourse according to God's law. Uh, there's certainly some truth in that. If you are not getting the law of God as it's written, the whole counsel of God, not just um, cherry-picked pieces. I know of one case where a, uh, a predatory father uh, said, well, you know, incest between a father and a daughter is not explicitly forbidden in God's law. Well, actually, it is covered in that very chapter of the law of God uh, under a, a wider sweeping article. But it fooled the victim, not permanently, thank the Lord, but it certainly seemed like a compelling argument. and. Who was there to say different? 
who was there uh, dealing with the Word of God and, and going through it and indicating that she had value and was not just a, a thing to be uh, accessed uh, illegitimately, uh, evilly by her, her father. So, yeah, ignorance of God's law or cherry-picking it so it makes things look different than they actually appear, that's where we get the blind guides. And where do we then end up with blind guides? In the ditch. And our culture has been in the ditch for quite a while and trying to dig a deeper ditch than it's already in. And so uh, I hold that when we apply the entirety of God's word to this, it has very strong things to say about sanctions against uh, predators and also uh, how to deal with uh, the victim. It's not enough to say, okay, we punish the wrongdoer. What about how we get the victim back on his or her feet? And I say his or her because it can go either way sometimes. Exactly. Um, we, yeah, we don't want to uh, gear it toward one gender, even though it might be a dominant case that women are victimized. Every single victim is an individual case of justice and needs to be dealt with at the individual level and be dealt with seriously. Seriously enough that sanctions against false witness also apply. Those should not scare anyone away. Uh, those actually are protections, and they protect the, uh, us from, uh, to an extent. Now, nothing's perfect in biblical law this side of the final judgment. We can strive for godliness, and that's what the goal is, which means we do it God's way. But because there's always a potential for a false witness not being detected, because they're very, very good liars, and they're able to cover their tracks, God settles all accounts at the final judgment. But we're called to deliver as much justice as God's law is going to uh, um, sanction this side of the grave following his laws and his rules. And that's what the calling is. Anything other than that, either less or more, is uh, ungodly. Is either trying to be more holy than God and having a higher standard in the law of God, which, of course, shows that God's a, a moral idiot, if you believe that, uh, or uh, we are uh, not applying what God requires for justice, and so we're actually compromising on what is just for our society and is just for the victims. And also, I believe, once you set this in motion and it's well known, and the law of God is in everyone's mouth and lips, the range of predator action is restricted because people's boundaries are preserved, their personalities are left whole, and they are aware of their standing in Christ as a created being, uh, in God's image, that needs not to be putting up with abuse from someone who ought to be in a position of protecting them in particular. This is what I'm really concerned with, uh, because a lot of these cases are where someone who should be protecting the victim is the one actually harming them, whether it's a parent uh, or a pastor, a professor in a college where it's institutional setting, and the we have the lecturers, professors, one of the books on my shelf here. You can imagine what its contents uh, reveal about anyone with power over students uh, and, right. and how they secure what they want. So it, there's no area of human life and existence which is uh, hides away from the effects of man's sinfulness. That's why it's an ugly, ugly topic to deal with. Now, Steve has joined us. He was a little late, but I anticipated he was. And Steve has done an awful lot of work prior to being in his current position, speaking on college campuses, working with those who oppose abortion. But just hearing you say what you say, Martin, makes me think this may have an awful lot to do with some women's vehemence on their right to not be pregnant, especially if they have been abandoned by the father of the child or the victim of someone who took advantage of them. Now, 
please understand, I'm not saying that abortion is ever correct, but it certainly would point to a ungodly t- solution in the face of justice not being served. Wouldn't you agree? There's a component of, of that there, certainly, because in, in the humanistic view, the abortion serves as a, as a something of a, believe it or not, a safety valve <laughs> to get rid of the consequences of what has happened. Now, that's a terrible thing to take a human life and simply put it, uh, lump, lump it under the label of a consequence and therefore abstract and dehumanizing it. But when you're trying to get back on your feet, then you're going to be, uh, and the trained not to be selfless, it should be pointed out. Uh, selfishness seems to be at the core of all the isms on a college campus because the universe ro- rotates around every single student and they're taught this uh, as opposed to laying your life down for someone else including perhaps your own unborn child. But yeah, there's, there's a sense in which they don't have any other sanctions. And, we, we, and when you talk about a question behind the question, the name of these podcasts, uh, we don't become uh, pregnant with the virgin conception nowadays. Uh, there's always things that happen before that point to which brings a conception to happen. That's and right. so all the supposed the, the decisions that went, happened before Sometimes it's not even a decision if you've been drugged. <laughs> it might be something that happens when you're unconscious, sadly enough, which is another form of abuse, of course, uh, fall, wrongful use of someone else. Uh, you know, all these things conspire to be the actual source of the problems. And so the, the murder of the child down the line is, is, that is part of a, con, a um, string of events, a yes. cascade of events that started a lot earlier just like the string of uh, sin that it gives, conce- uh, conceives and gives birth to is a string, a cascade of events. So too, uh, abortion is the end result. And even then it's not the end because then you have the guilt and remorse that often... Uh, right. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It perpetuates that cycle. And uh, when I was working in pro-life ministry, we, would, we saw how even the abuse is perpetuated through abortion. There were high-profile cases, a great number of cases where people would use the Planned Parenthood or the abortion center as a way to perpetuate or hide the abuse. You, know, you have deplorable mm-hmm. fathers or abusers, folks who were using young girls for sex trade or just generally abusing them, and abortion was a tool used by these people to hide the abuse. I think there was a case just yeah. this past week of a, of a political representative, I can't remember if he was state or national, but who was anti-abortion on paper, but in his own life had coached a young woman into having an abortion to hide his abuse, to hide his secret life there. And so abortion, you, you said this emergency valve, but it's also used to perpetuate this cycle of abuse that God's law is supposed to protect against. So abortion itself doesn't liberate women from abuse. It perpetuates a cycle where women are the victim of it, both, as you and mentioned, psychologically. Law. And God's law, of course, always confronts us with responsibility. And abortion, of course, is probably the ultimate irresponsible conduct because it, uh, the cost is paid by a third party, innocent third party with their life, uh, which is tr- trampled underfoot and snuffed out in order to then clear the playing field to start the process all over again for those who then double down. And that's why we, we hear stories of multiple abortions and, and the women who tend to go through those see that as a, um, a rite of passage, if you will, which is a shock. But in our culture, when we have this moral inversion, then irresponsibility is put on the pedestal. 
And misconduct without consequences becomes the ultimate, in their view, liberty. Of course, it's a form of enslavement, but uh, they uh, see liberty in terms of licentiousness, and uh, that goes way back. (laughs) As we know, this was the promise uh, in the garden, you shall determine good and evil for yourselves. You won't have God imposing any ideas of what's right and wrong on you. And so abortion, of course, is a statement in this regard. And you're right, uh, in the presence of abortion, does in fact facilitate the perpetuation of abuse where it's being used primarily to cover up uh, and remove the responsibility of the consequences. Uh, because you incentivize what you subsidize, and if you take the consequences away, then what's the downside? Except an uh, expensive visit to an, an abortion clinic here and there. And that's the way a lot of folks see it, because uh, there's no one pushing back. That's right. What we say here in the classroom is you get more of whatever you tolerate. You know, whatever you yeah, tolerate, you true. end up getting more of it. Uh, and in the content consequence or, or in the context of abuse, this idea of, of women being victims is not just bad because women are made in the image of God, but it also destroys a picture of what marriage is because it's, it's primarily how God sees male and female as this two pieces of a, of a one humankind. And so when we see women being abused or women being used in a way of sexual objects like abortion makes them out to be. Uh, it's really destroying uh, everything that the biblical standard of marriage is all about as well. So you can see how since Roe v. Wade, uh, when abortion has made this kind of sacrament of the new age, marriage and the relationship between husband and wife and the idea and identity of man and woman have also began to crumble And it perpetuates, again, this cycle of abuse where women are less defended because they don't have biblical standards of morality to protect them. The other problem, of course, is that if you're told your body is your own and you you own yourself as the libertarian, ultra-libertarian mantra is, then you're not God's property anymore. And so whatever value you have is uh, generated from internal and that, of course, is, is finite, as it happens, <laughs> uh, which means that it's very easy to be uh, imposed upon and uh, drilled into you that you're not worthy and that you're not worth much. And in fact, uh, the best you can hope for is to be abused and uh, your fullness will come from that. But if you're God's property, then uh, you are owned and created for a purpose by an, uh, an infinite being who had infinite wisdom and infinite purpose behind uh, your creation and your existence here. If you draw air at all, his air, that is because he wills it. And so when you see God's hand behind you, that invests you with value. And people who see their own value and see it also as uh, transcending their own physical body and their own uh, horizon of contemplation, uh, they see their value and they're more inclined to protect it and defend it because they, they see it as something as a part of a bigger picture. They live for something bigger than themselves, if you will. And that is a tremendous motive force that can push back against uh, almost anything except being fed false scriptures, <laughs> false view of worldview. And then, of course, someone might be using the word of God against you and your ignorance will hurt you. And it might not be a culpable ignorance. You may not have known this if this is like an incest situation, such as what... Uh, Freud had been encountering and deciding to suppress the data on way back before the turn of the 20th century. Well, I think it's really easy for people to say, okay, this is great. You're talking about justice. We should have justice. And I know, Martin, you recently wrote an article on this in Arise and Build, that it's not enough to just say, wow, that's an injustice. 
that God calls his people to pursue justice. If we're to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, well, it was Rush Dooney who pointed out that a synonymous term for righteousness is justice. What does that look like in 2019? Well, I think it looks the same as it did when Isaiah was uh, called upon to pen the 32nd chapter of uh, his uh, his prophecies. Uh, he talks about, you know, in, uh, in righteousness will the king rule, and the princes will uh, rule according to justice. So you have the civil domain and the, and the clerical domain all working in terms of God's law. And then it says, a man, which means any and every man, uh, will be a hiding place and the uh, and the uh, covert and the uh, a rivulet and the uh, a great boulder in a uh, wasteland, you know, land of fainting. And that second verse of uh, Isaiah 32 is really pointing out our obligations as laymen. It's all there because it's uh, it's what our calling is to become a refuge for those in need. And the state of those who are in need is then laid out in the subsequent verses. Uh, and the consequences of us taking individual cognizance. Really, it turns out that uh, Jesus knew what he was doing in Luke 10 when he laid out this parable of the Good Samaritan. Here we have the picture of the conservative theological folks, the priest and the Levite. Uh, they pass by the side. They make a wide berth around the injured party, the victim, uh, the, the man who fell among thieves. But it was the Samaritan who actually made a beeline to the man, even though he had bad theology. Uh, and that's why he was hated uh, by the Jews, you know, second-class citizen at best. But he did what was necessary uh, for the victim. He operated in terms of Isaiah 32, too. And so Jesus then points out to the uh, lawyer that asked the question, you know, you need to do likewise as the Samaritan did, which is essentially to be a refuge hiding place, a covert, a rivulet, which is a source of uh, water to the, the parched land, and a boulder uh, and to, to shade people from the heat of the sun, etc. All these functions are in terms of the abused, the people who are oppressed. And so it's a lifting of oppression that every individual Christian has an obligation uh, to engage in. And then the consequence of that involves opening of the eye and the ear, which is later on in that same prophecy, I think the fourth verse. And then we change what we call things. This is a big deal here where it says we'll no longer call the churl uh, liberal. In other words, the predator will no longer be given names and titles of a pastor or president or professor or even father, potentially, um, because his truth, the real situation will be known. The social lies are exploded, as we say. Uh, and that's an important part, is that we are not going to call things as they really are, rather than save the appearances and uh, protect the perceptions. And so it's the inversion of things, this change, this reformation of language, so that when we listen and hear what those who are stammering and who've been victimized are trying to tell us, it'll become clear to us, we'll be able to function as a refuge, a hiding place. And the way I put it in that article was, we all talk about the priesthood of all believers, but we don't talk about the hiding placehood of all believers, and the coverthood and the boulderhood of all believers, where we're to protect those who need help, those who have been hurt. So we need to be exactly like the Good Samaritan, except with good theology. But if I had a choice between bad theology and good conduct, I think God's going to look more kindly on deed. And right. so that's one of the well, things we've noticed. Go ahead, Steve. And that's, it's those dichotomies that we kind of get stuck in. I mean, when you talk about the evolution of language and the use of language, it's very easy for us in 2019 
to get caught up in the word justice and to elevate it to some like super virtue. You know, we have social justice warriors and, and things that are used that justice becomes something of its own, its own identity. And I think what you're saying is justice must be understood in the context of a, of a community. That justice is not some abstract idea. That justice has to be worked out in families, in churches, in covenant communities, in cities. And it has to be real. Otherwise, it's not just some, some strange virtue. Right. You're saying that uh, philosophers say you take this abstraction and you reify it. You actually give it physical uh, presence as if it actually existed and, and you could touch it, but you can't. That's justice is something that's done and it is, and it is done in terms uh, of what God's law requires. That's what godliness and justice entail. Uh, so there's a standard by which justice is known. There's a plumb line and this plumb line has been lost uh, and certainly much been almost deliberately buried since the advent of dispensationalism, where we took most of the Old Testament and uh, put it in the back drawer as the word of God emeritus. So we don't really have the plumb line. And a lot of the, uh, that's why when we talk about sanctions against abuse of clergy, against uh, pastors who've abused uh, uh, and harmed and be predators on their flock, when I spoke in Alabama, I put up pictures, I think, of four or five books that talk about restoring fallen spiritual leaders, putting pastors back in to office after um, they've hurt the flock or been guilty mm-hmm. of sexual abuses, etc., and I contrast that with the oath of God in Ezekiel 34, verses 7 through 10, where uh, God's own oath on his own life says that they are not to be uh, shepherding the flock anymore, ever again, evermore. That's it's right. Permanent dispatch. It's one strike you're out. So if you're un- unaware of what the Old Testament is, you might just slough over that or talk about uh, Galatians 6, 1, restoring such a one, and if assuming restoring is to all full of, uh, institutional offices in the church, which is not, as if Paul was going to throw Ezekiel under the bus and say, Paul has the authority to set aside God's own oath. Well, the book of Hebrews says God's oath stands. The and the early church understood God. that. The, yeah, they did. If, if you look at how they treated predators even 500 years ago, you know, some, some people are familiar with ordination processes in the you know, Catholic or the old Orthodox or even old Anglican churches. When they ordain a, a, a pastor, a priest, a presbyter, they put oil on his hands you know, as a sign that you are to you know, deliver the word and deliver the sacraments to the people. And so they put an oil and they rub it on the palm of their hands and all the way to the tips of their finger. And then they put their hands together and they wrap their hands. And that's kind of like this, this sign that you have been consecrated for this office well if a man in the catholic church up until recent history was caught with one of these egregious acts with children or with with uh, adultery anything like this the bishop would call him defrock him remove his title and as a sign of how evil what he did uh, is permanent they would take a metal blade and they would scrape the skin off the palm of his hands to remove that oil that had been placed there. There's no oil there later, right? It, it goes away. But as a sign That's that right. once, you're, once you've done something this horrible, you're removed from teaching office forever. And they have scars on their hands to prove it. Nowadays, of course, we have that scandal problem. And again, people, instead of protecting the victims, are more intent on protecting the church from scandal. And that's why my, I spent my second lecture Talking about uh, the sad fact is you know, one of my quotations from a professor at uh, Baylor College, Baylor University said, the victims are harmed 
by the predator, but the victims are destroyed by the congregation afterward. And that's the kind of problem we face uh, where the congregation is in on the general motive to hide the problem and to then reattribution of blame means we reverse the role and say the victim is really the problem because we were fine before we had a victim. Now we have a victim here and we want that problem to go away. And so they drive the victim sometimes to suicide. And I actually give an example of one woman who did in fact commit suicide when no one in the church believed her and they all accused her of being a liar. And then the week after her death, the incontrovertible proof that the pastor had in fact sexually abused her came out. But by then it was too late because the church had already done its job. So let me ask you this, okay? When we were earlier talking about abortion, and I've had the privilege, actually, of being with women who came to terms with their sin, and they confess, they repent, and they feel the cleansing of the blood of Jesus on their life. So this is not something that we would ever say is unpardonable, that the Lord will pardon as a result of Jesus' blood the sins of people. However, it's harder for people to get their head around. What about the man who knows that he has sinned, has come to terms with his sin, but there are no civil sanctions in place. We don't have civil sanctions in place for adultery anymore. So we certainly wouldn't have civil sanctions in place for someone coming up and saying, I raped someone, I took advantage of someone, you know, incest or whatever it is. How do we proceed if the civil government isn't in step with God's word? Well, of course, that means God acts. Psalm 119, verse 126, is time for thee, O Lord, to uh, act because they have made void thy law. So this always triggers an action. And I think this is what motivated Artaxerxes in the book of Ezra, the seventh chapter, when he gives instructions that God's law should be fulfilled. And he says, because why should there be wrath on the realm of the king and upon his sons? He realized that if he didn't uh, enforce what God required and release what God required to be released, like the church from taxation, then there would be God's wrath upon him. So any culture that decides we're not going to enforce God's law will have God's law or God's sanctions enforced upon it supernaturally. It's like you can pay him now, you can pay him later. That's how God works. And so uh, it's the Christian's job to try to pull their culture back into alignment with God's requirement for the sake of that culture. Uh, Therefore, they actually are their society's best friends in the sense that they're trying to uh, stave off the catastrophe that is self-inflicted when a culture pulls itself its own future down upon its head and destroys its future. One way to do that, of course, is to kill the children in the womb destroys the future intrinsically. So uh, we obviously need to start somewhere. However, I believe that the Word of God is uh, powerful. Uh, It goes between bone and marrow and soul and spirit, dividing asunder. And it it always prospers in the thing where with God sent it. So if we're faithful to proclaim the law of God, the whole counsel of God, jot and tittleism, I call it, because... You can't just take a piece of it, no cherry picking, but if you apply the whole thing and you start with yourself, you don't say, I'm going to go top down. I believe the bottom up approach is appropriate. Then that, that is a spreading flame, as F.F. Bruce called it. And uh, that can catch fire in a culture because then, and I think one of the areas where it caught fire and we need to make sure it's, it stays stoked because it's kind of uh, 
leveled off some is in the homeschooling movement. This is where people take back uh, self-government over education in the families. Uh, and I think this is one area where uh, we have an opportunity to cause that flame to, to spread further. But in failing that, I think you're going to get a very uh, evil culture because the restraints upon it aren't there. One of the purposes of the law of God is to restrain transgression. You know, the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the residue of wrath thou shalt restrain, we read in Psalm 76.10. But that's not a good place to be when uh, God is using uh, our evil as a restraint upon ourselves. Because when you're too evil, <laughs> the culture starts to fall apart. So it's like you can uh, right. deviate from God only so far before you start to pay very, very high prices uh, culturally. And, uh, yeah, and you can't well, and really build on the sand forever. Andrew, to your, to your original much. question. You, you mentioned, you know, what if the laws in our day and age don't match the, the laws of the state? And it's not like the church has ever been in, it's not like the church has never been in this position. The entire New Testament is written in a culture where the laws of the state are different than the laws of God, right? We're inside Roman governors and we're underneath the Judean governors. The, the Herodians were certainly against God's law, but... I think if you go back to uh, what St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, he talks about uh, there's the case where the, the people are proud that the son is having the sexual relationship with his father's wife, you know, his stepmom. And here's a situation where you have what in many situations be considered a illegal or abusive thing, and the people are, are proud of it. And by Roman standards, and perhaps even by cultural standards, it was permissible. It wasn't maybe not a crime. But yet, St. Paul says that there's something about uh, the church and membership in it. There's something about the relationship of excommunication. There's something about us putting somebody outside of the fellowship that's also a great punishment. I think what happens in a lot of abuse cases is that people are so concerned with keeping the fellowship together, they forget that St. Paul says, if you put somebody outside of the fellowship, they're going to be devoured by Satan. And that is uh, a very powerful thing, I think more powerful than even the state sword, because when you are practicing the grace of excommunication, you're giving that person over to be buffeted, to be disciplined back into the proper body by Satan. That's what the call is to do, even if the state disagrees with the law, the church is supposed to put people outside the fellowship, let Satan chase that person back in, and then have real relationships uh, based on that. Which uh, Steve brings up a good point that even if the civil authority has no sanction for something, the church certainly is not uh, unable to say bar from communion or bar from fellowship entirely with the next communication. So we have spiritual weapons available that certainly can work on the individual conscience if it's not seared. That's right. And that's what the church did, right? They had two separate court systems. We had St. Paul and St. Peter establishing God's law within the church. And then they eventually set up their own systems, courts and judges. And for the first 300 years of the church, they're applying God's law, case law, according to St. Moses, to the lives of the people in the church. And God was giving the church power. You know, you remember the case in uh, the very beginning of the book of Acts where St. Peter calls somebody out for lying <laughs> and they get dropped dead. Uh, that kind of power still exists in the church today. The spirit still lives and works through his covenant faithful people. And so maybe the results aren't immediate, you drop dead, but as Martin's talking about, the culture will dissolve, the people will degenerate. There is consequences for not bringing justice to the surface. 
So I can see the enemies of God saying, well, you had the Bible for however many thousands of years before Christ, and we've had 20 centuries. Obviously, the Bible doesn't make any difference here because there's just as much abuse inside the church as outside the church. For those who know that that's not true, that the Holy Spirit, as you said, Steve, is still living and functioning, what's a good way for them to approach what happens if they encounter someone in the fellowship of believers who reveals something to them? What should be the steps they take? Well, I think the first step in any type of, of conflict is always to obey our Lord's command, to take it to a person directly. You know, the, the church has this responsibility to obey our Lord's commands, to go to our brothers directly and to call individuals to repentance. Um, so easy, these, these hot, inflamed issues can become controversies, gossip. We need to deal directly with people. We need to involve our church elders as a, as a part of this. And we need to not make excuses for why crimes are not considered crimes. For example, in my situation, I'm a pastor and I'm also a school principal. If I have any type of situation where I think there's abuse at home, not because the state tells me to, but because I care for justice and caring and protecting these children, there is right away a phone call you know, to the related parents who are obeying Matthew and, or the Gospel of St. Matthew and, and taking it directly to those people and trying to rectify this situation. We are involving the church and saying, here is the allegation. Then we are involving the state and saying, here is the situation. We're going through and doing our due diligence because we were called to protect these children. And we know that those of us who are in those positions of leadership are not just risking our church or our reputation, but the Lord says that if you know you allow something to happen to these little children, it'd be better if a millstone were cast around your neck, right? It's better to not be born than to allow a child or, or a young woman or somebody innocent or vulnerable become victimized. And you mentioned the challenge by the uh, unbelievers. You've had the Bible for, you know, at least complete for 20 centuries. What's your, what's your track record? And the reality is that just a, that theology develops fairly slowly. It takes a while for the church to settle matters. Christology took till 451 at Chalcedon uh, when we were able to settle the person uh, and the nature and being of Christ in his relationship to the Father and to creation. And uh, soteriology, that took till the Reformation to nail out. And we still don't have eschatology worked out uh, in its entirety. And it seems that this area also has uh, slacked off. And again, because of this propensity for protecting churches from from scandal. There's something intrinsic to this nature, and that's why I think the warnings are so rife in Scripture about, you know, Jerusalem was a city that had righteousness in it, but now murderers are dwelling in it. And uh, we don't see it in our own churches because the facade is so, uh, and, the, and the masks we wear are so compelling, and uh, no one wants to say the emperor has no clothes. And that's because we don't have a sense of godly justice of the biblical law, which means you know every man stands on it and it alone, regardless what the rest of the church says. We have to understand that uh, it's time to look into the scriptures that speak to this matter. That's why I was kind of stunned to see that there was a little bit of work done on Isaiah 32 and its apparent relationship to abuse, but you have to dig for it, and it's not out there in the open. And yet, here's an entire paradigm of how abuse should be dealt with 
uh, in terms of uh, the response of those who can come alongside the victim and support them and, and deliver them out of land, is to use biblical uh, language. Uh, we have a template for this, and we have also the results and the predictions of what happens when men are refuges for one for another, and when we are protective and we become that hiding place for someone who's being hurt or oppressed or maligned or, or uh, evil done to them. You would think this would be natural to us after all that Jesus said, but it's not, and we always think of the Good Samaritan uh, and not realizing that every moment we have an opportunity potentially to be that Good Samaritan and uh, that we should all, we should have millions of Good Samaritans walking around, but it's not evident that anyone is walking according to that pattern. And it's a right. pattern laid out in Isaiah 32 that describes how the kingdom of God is supposed to unfold when God's justice informs every sinew and ligament and, and uh, uh, artery of it. And we're not, we know that's where we need to go, but uh, we're not there. That means yes. more responsibility. Yeah. And like we always <laughs> say at Calcedon, we try to sell increased responsibility, and that's a very hard sell. And unfortunately, well, and, it's a huge price to pay when we're not responsible. That's why it's difficult, because you know Andrea's question is, if you had the Bible, and, and why has the Bible been here for 20 centuries and not created this great change? There's, a, there's a, a great quote by Chesterton that goes something like, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, meaning like the law has not been tried and found to not work. The problem is what you're saying, that it's, it's been found difficult. It's a lot of work to keep up the law, to apply righteousness, to, to be equitable. That's a lot of work and requires a righteous people. Uh, but it has been found difficult. And as Jeff Chesterton would say, it's been left untried for those 20 centuries. There are times yeah. in history when they've right. applied it. Yeah, they've applied it, but it's difficult and it requires work. So the problem is not that the Christian standard isn't good enough. It's that it's perfect and therefore we have to daily strive to it. Right. It doesn't create itself. It's embodied in individual Christians who then become a walking law incarnate, if you will, like Christ was law incarnate. He calls us to do the same. And that's also love incarnate, for that matter, because the law and the love are intertwined. One doesn't exist without the other. If God didn't love us, he wouldn't guide us. Uh, he wouldn't provide the sanctions for harm to restore. The purpose of those sanctions and the uh, and the restoratives is to uh, do what Isaiah 42 says, that God does not break the, bru- uh, the bruised reed, and he doesn't quench the smoking flax. He's very gentle. Uh, in how he applies God's justice, it's done in such a way that those who are weak and and on the edge of uh, on the on the nails you know, hanging from the wall, he sees them through and he and he comforts them. And we need to be exactly like that, like follow the model of Christ. And again, as Steve said, that's difficult, and it involves uh, courage and a moral compass. And and we we lack this. And part of it is because we shun the law of God. We just want good news gospel and uh, walk according to uh, a release from the effects of sin. But the reality is sin will still infest our culture unless we apply God's law. And it's only going to make the problem worse if we decide to use humanistic solutions. They don't work. They cannot work because man is not what humanism says he is. He is what God says he is. And only God's solutions will apply and only those will work. And those entail that every Christian, everyone who names the name of the Lord, becomes, in fact, a refuge and a hiding place and a covert and a boulder uh, to shield those who need to be shielded from harm. So Christian Reconstruction, which is what we're about, if it's not based on God's law, it'll never occur. 
because that's the only solid foundation. And I think that's why these go hand in hand. When you have churches who now will start embracing the fact that the full counsel of God needs to be taught rather than a feel-good, hey, your life may be great now, but it could be better later if you just accept Jesus, that we point out that pure religion is helping those who are oppressed, the widow and the orphan, which a lot of women, going back to the abortion issue, were left like widows with men who impregnated them and then didn't mm-hmm. step up to the plate. So I think there's a, a level of compassion that isn't humanistic compassion, that it's genuine compassion that helps the victim, even if it's not possible to get redressed now. Let's say the person who victimized that person is dead. It helps to know that God's law understands that what was done to them was an injustice. And sometimes that's enough to start the healing process. And you used compassion. It's the very word in Luke 10, when Jesus describes, you know, in talking to the lawyer, Jesus asked him, which man was the neighbor to the one who fell among thieves? The lawyer says, the one who showed him compassion. And Jesus says, go and do likewise then. So literally, that's kind of the core of what these um, the law is about. That's why Jesus says the way you manage the law, the, the, the berry terror, it's a single word in the uh, Greek in Matthew 23, 23, uh, are justice, mercy, and faith. You can mercy uh, very similar to compassion and faith, and where that's because it is required to be merciful and compassionate in the law, uh, not to be cold-hearted and turn your face away from the needy. Uh, to be, say, be warmed and comforted, uh, that's not adequate, especially not for these times when humanism is, uh, seems to have an upper hand in so many regards. And, of course, humanism, all they have is uh, molecules in motion. All they have is this universe that was made, and they, and they don't believe there's anything beyond it. But that's the beautiful thing that uh, Luke sixteen seventeen informs us, that heaven and earth will pass away, uh, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one daughter tale to pass from the law of God. So we have a much stronger foundation than the humanists have. All they have is the material world that they believe um, exploded into existence uh, and alleged to six billion, whatever, 18 billion years ago. Who knows what the Who knows? The numbers keep changing. Right. So we're coming to the end of our time, Martin. Thank you for joining us. And Steve, thanks for the comments you made as well. I, I think this is something that could probably bear further discussion. But I'm curious, Martin. Are those lectures that were given in Alabama in April, are they going to be available for people to hear? Yes, they have had a couple of video cameras on me and three microphones. <laughs> Just in case something went wrong with one system, they had a backup system, then they had a backup to the backup system. So they're editing the videos. They're going to edit my PowerPoint presentations and uh, prepare them for posting to social media at zero cost. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. So they'll be made available for free. And I believe they're merely scratching the surface. There's, not, there's nothing perfect or last word in any of it. But if we don't start the conversation and start to articulate where the answers are to be found and then expound upon this, then we're in trouble. The good news is I was always between sessions sworn by a bunch of young reconstructionists who were very excited about what was being talked about here because they knew that no one was talking about it. And therefore, for the first time, we're exposing you know, the conservative Orthodox Word of God, that light into the image. What we have up until now is for the last 40 years is the liberal progressive side of Christendom has done human service here, but their theology is atrocious. 
but they did the right thing. They had to fight the Samaritan, and they did deal with uh, abuse that the conservative churches were papering over and hiding from. It's time for us to get out, and uh, if we claim to have the answers in the Bible and the law of God, then uh, we better be uh, on our game, and, and uh, because this culture and the society is not going to uh, be able to be healed with anything less than the entirety of God's law being applied to it. And that is specifically true for the abuse crisis because of the immense harm that it does to the victims. So one last thing. I know that Calcedon's going to be launching the Journal of Christian Liberty, and the first issue is going to be dealing with this topic. How close is that to publication? Well, I'm hoping to have one of the biggest articles in it completed in the next two to four weeks. Uh, and uh, but it's we're dealing with all sorts of different kinds of abuse in the uh, in the in fact let me go back up a step. It's actually going to be the first two issues of that journal will apply to abuse, and it'll be a part one and a part two because we can't put it all into one book. <laughs> so we can look forward to that. Oh, absolutely. I'm looking forward to getting it done, and I'm looking forward to a lot of other folks uh, picking up the ball and running with it, because it can't just be me doing the whole thing, because this needs to be filtering down into the troops so that uh, we all become what Isaiah 32.2 is talking about. We all uh, take up the the trowel and the, uh, the sword in this particular area of concern, which is a blot on the church today. And it's a disaster upon our society because if the church is corrupt, the society can't have much hope for it, can it? Steve, you have any closing thoughts? Just finally that what you were saying about uh, abuse and how people can find relief and release in the gospel, that when we look at the story of Jesus, it's not of a, of a perfect lineage either. The first chapter of Matthew is about how Jesus is from a broken family with folks in there who had adultery, who had abuse, who had all kinds of of perversions in their history, and yet it produced the perfect child. Um, So if you're hearing this and and there is some abuse that's keeping you from really trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, know that his family history, his, his genealogy, where he came from, can sympathize with you and that there is real healing in him who kept that law perfectly, that you might find fullness and wholeness, and not only forgiveness, but healing through the gospel. Excellent. Well, thanks, Martin, again for joining us. And uh, listeners, if you have any comments about this podcast or any suggestions for future ones, email us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you all later. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.